Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo, it's been a minute, yo. It really has. It really has. Oh. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we talk Canadian news and Black issues every single week. And if you support our work to keep you informed, please subscribe. On this week's episode, we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of January 5th, including. A deal finally being struck to compensate Indigenous child welfare victims and Omicron fallout. Rest in peace, Sydney Poitier. One year post the attack on the Capitol, is democracy dead? Vaccine inequities and plenty more. And we're back. Happy New Year, everyone. We certainly hope you ended the year on a good note, despite Omicron. We here at The Drip took a break because, quite frankly, things have gotten very busy for both Patience and I. Thankfully, though, I think it's fair to say that we're both busy for all the right reasons. Speaking of reasons, there's a great one for celebration this week because after 15 years of legal battles, First Nations leaders and the feds have struck an absolutely major $40 billion agreement in principle to compensate Indigenous kids who were harmed by the discriminatory and downright predatory child welfare system. The plan also aims to reform the system that needlessly tore so many kids from their families in the first place. It's a non-binding agreement, but it sets aside $20 billion for direct compensation to First Nations children on reserve and in the Yukon who are removed from their homes between April 1 of 1991 and March 31 of 2022. Huge. The other $20 billion will go toward reforming the system. If it's approved, it would be the largest financial settlement of its kind in Canadian history. The parties have until March 31 to finalize it. And for the record, the Assembly of First Nations estimates that more than 200,000 youth could be eligible. This is very, very, very good news. And it looks like the floor for compensation to each Indigenous child will be 40000 bucks after all, which would adhere to the ruling by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, as we've spoken about before, patients. That's the, the floor, right? Not the ceiling. The floor. The floor. The floor. There we the go. floor. Still, while there's definitely a feeling that progress is being made, key people are still holding out for action, not just words on paper. Cindy Blackstock, the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, who was the woman who took the government to court in the first place, told CBC News she hopes the agreement will provide a roadmap to satisfy the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. But at the same time, she pointed out that, quote, no child's life is better today, that's today as in when the agreement was made, than it was yesterday because of these words on paper. We have to see the government actually deliver this stuff, end quote. And I hear that. Preach. 
the, the good news is that it looks like from the perspective of most, if not all, in Parliament, this is a done deal. Why? Well, we know the Liberals, NDP, and Greens are in favor of this agreement. You know who else is? The Conservatives. <laughs> or, or at least their leader is. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole said he supports the compensation agreement too. What? Dude even went as far he, he even went as far as saying he isn't concerned about the cost. Fam, what? someone go to hell and check if it's still hot. Nah, it called. <laughs> In Aaron's own words, quote, personally, I don't think the amount is important. It's reconciliation that matters. Wow. He went on to say, quote, reconciliation is a priority for me and for my caucus. I thought it was Positive to see a resolution between the federal government and the First Nations and Indigenous children. The situation was unacceptable, and that's why we're generally in favor of this resolution, end quote. Honestly, normally this is where I'd say, but I don't trust him. But the truth is, Aaron may be telling the truth. I say that I say that because remember the conversion therapy bill we just discussed like last month, yeah, right, patients? Yeah. That finally passed the House. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it also passed the Senate, where the cons could have stalled it or tore it up. But just like I predicted, they didn't touch it. The bill passed exactly as it was, mm. and they pushed it through. So the very same thing could happen here with this child welfare agreement. So what do you think about this latest development, patients? So I was listening. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, but I'm coming right back like a boomerang, okay? Come through. I was listening to an argument uh, a couple of days ago and, you know, classic kind of uh, liberal versus conservative argument where someone was talking about how conservatives, you know, are are so pro-life and Mm. are so committed to, you know, like removing access to to abortions and stuff like that but mm-hmm. at the same time are not supporting the kind of full life cycle of the child in terms of you know correcting the child welfare system and ensuring that there are you know adoption agencies and, and that foster care happens properly and all of these things that that parents mothers pregnant people tend to be concerned about when they consider abortion and mm-hmm. so this conversation was urging conservatives to think less from a one issue perspective and more from uh, if you believe this, then, you know, we probably need more support in in this way. I I, I kind of think that this is where support from the conservatives of child welfare is coming from, that they are, they're going to really hold the line when it comes to abortion, when it comes to well, I say this hesitantly, but sustainability, climate change, like they're going to still believe climate change is not a thing. They're going to still believe abortion should not be accessible, but they're going to have to cave in because the research is pouring in and showing that this ain't it. Right. That the child welfare system that we have in place in general, but specifically for indigenous people that enabled historical events like the 60s scoop is not it. It ruined lives. It ruined a generation of people. Right. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you said a lot. I mean, look, I, I feel I feel what you're saying. I don't want to muddy the waters in, in saying that, you know, I, I don't know what face or what foot the conservative party is putting forward here. Like, I, I don't know if this is completely genuine. I yeah. mean, if I think back to the conversion therapy bill, even though, as I pointed out, it passed and they helped push it through. 
there's still a lot of their MPs and certainly a lot of their membership that have, I mean, I'd say the members, uh, the MPs have some reservations. I'd say their membership is livid right now. Yeah. Livid. Yeah. And so when we're talking about um, indigenous compensation for, you know, the the effects of whether it's the residential school system or in this case, uh, the discriminatory acts uh, or actions of the child welfare system, a lot of their base, to be honest, a lot of them will say, okay, yeah, they deserve some compensation, but 40 billion? I know. I know. <laughs> that isn't even fiscally conservative. Like, it's not socially it's conservative, not... it's not fiscally conservative. So um, I think it's positive that the conservatives are holding this line. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, look, the conservative party of the past, they've they've done the right thing on monumental issues as well so i it's, really? it's certainly possible they have so again i mean i mean if we look at climate change for example the acid rain accord that was that was struck by Mulroney. Um, oh, okay, Mulroney. Harper, okay so sorry but, <laughs> like yeah sorry but listen but listen here though but listen here give me a Harper example even, exactly i'll give you a Harper okay example. good <laughs> He led, he led the child and uh, I think it's child and newborn or child and maternal uh, health initiative where he raised, I think it was $50 billion to improve maternal child and maternal health in the developing world. Now, the problem with Harper is that he, going back to your point about abortion, he wanted to make sure that there was no contraceptive services available. In those same countries? In those same countries. Well, what kind of sickness? <laughs> like, are you good? <laughs> Yo, okay. So, like, I'm sorry, you killed, you you killed the argument point, for me though. then. So, Did I really? Yeah, because I, I think that you can still do a lot of work for child and maternal health without supporting abortion or contraceptive services. At least that's the perspective that that government had. Sam, what? So, well, we have, they have to get to the point where they understand that that is part of maternal health. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I trust me. I get it. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. But that was that was one of the ways that they caved to their base, right? So right. fundamentally, what I'm getting at is let's see how this manifests. I mean, if Aaron O'Toole was prime minister right now, what trade off would he make for this? Oh, yeah, that's true. Jumping to our next story, I, I kind of wanted to touch on the fallout from Omicron. Have you been experiencing any sort of fallout for yourself, Patience? Um, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, give me an example of what would be considered fallout. I'm not really experiencing much fallout. It's more so I'm hearing a lot of anger from people who they don't like the lockdowns. Yeah. Um, you know, there's people who, I, I don't know, do you know folks who took a flight over the Christmas break? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Enough people, right? Enough people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have if I could but, have straight up. But so they didn't they don't seem to care either way. Like they they don't care about the lockdown because they just had the time of their life in whatever country <laughs> they were going to that had, you know, more lenient restrictions than we have here in Canada. So I'm finding that those are the people who are angry about um, going back into lockdown from in, in my circle and, and from, yeah, in, in my circle, in my kind of ecosystem, it's the folks who have been following everything to a T, who are fully vaccinated, who got their booster, who, you know, are kind of doing everything that they're supposed to do, who are just mm. experiencing some COVID uh, fatigue and want mm. their kids to go to school and want to be able to go to the gym. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yo, I was cheesed about the gym. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and the restaurants, you know, because like with the gym, sure, yeah, take a walk, right? And the restaurants too. On fr- I, I, what was it? I think it was. I think it was Friday night. I'm like, yo, baby, let's go to the keg. She's like, we can't. I'm like, oh, yeah. the keg ain't the same on Uber Eats, yo. It ain't the same. <laughs> and I exactly, I wasn't about that life. <laughs> Uber Eats, Cold yo, you get the keg from through Uber Eats. It's like. Hundred and fifty dollars. Like it's like what? Like why nah, is this nah, so nah, expensive? No, 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 ain't about that life. But I don't know. It's 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 wild what's happening, and, and there's a lot of confusion happening right now. And then there's there's people like Aaron O'Toole that are kind of I don't know I don't know adding confusion to the mix because I don't know if you heard his announcement or his 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 perspective on where we are right now with Omicron. But he he thinks that. We should be making accommodation for the unvaccinated at this point. We need to um, effectively acknowledge that we're going to live here with Omic- or with the pandemic for some time, with COVID for some time, and begin to make room for the unvaccinated. Was he just deliberately vague, or did he give an example? So he was. He he seems to be trying to use the example of truckers in particular. But this is the way that conservatives do things. They'll use a very niche issue and try to apply it across the board. Right. So effectively, what he is saying and his uh, his transport um, shadow minister, um, Melissa Lansman, they're trying to say, listen, these mandatory vaccines and, and the requirement for them are, are hampering the movement of goods, particularly because truckers are under these vaccine requirements. A lot of them don't want it, obviously. Um, and if they don't take them, they can't move goods, which they'll say contributes to more inflation and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know. Uh, interesting argument. I think it's dumb as hell. It's like, what? Uh, like, <laughs> like, I was trying to be nice. Like, what? I'm looking. Listen, I was looking at the Globe and Mail, uh, which obviously is is no, you know, is not particularly friendly to the liberal party or liberal policies in the grand scheme. But there were so, they, they highlighted the story about Aaron O'Toole and there were numerous people, numerous readers saying, what the hell is Aaron O'Toole talking about? <laughs> like the, I don't actually, so, so let, let, let's let, can we revisit the, the example and really think through this? Is it just me? Like long haul truckers, uh, like sit alone in their truck uh-huh. and and drive across borders to deliver goods often you know don't even have to unload the truck mm-hmm. other people who are vaccinated and have masks and do their social distancing will un- like h- how is that an adequate representation of of all of the other industries that, that there's a, a much higher possibility of transmissibility like I- I think what it comes down to for them is that this is uh, this is one this is part of their base. Yeah. What do you think about this flight of uh, Montreal influencers who went to me- Mexico and um, were acting a whole uh, were, <laughs> were showing a whole ass and acting a fool on the plane? What do you think about that whole story and what do you think the outcome should be for them? Are we surprised? Is my is my initial response reaction? I, I was not at all surprised. Mm. Of course, the irresponsibility of it happening in the air is mm-hmm. novel. I mean, they were literally. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this kind of behavior happens at, at nightclubs that are still opening and operating underground, you know? 
doesn't particularly like it, I just thought it was brazen as fuck. Right. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yo, you're in the air. You don't know you're gonna get caught, fam. Like, it, what? How can you just not care at all? Like, I, I don't. Do, uh, do I don't we know, know anything that. about them in terms of like demographics? Do we know if they're all like under twenty one or something? Like, I don't know. I I do assume that they're younger. I don't. I don't. But I don't know. Um, I I just think it's funny that there's so much anger towards these people right now maybe not funny i think it's interesting that there's so much anger towards these these influencers right now um and uh i wonder what the outcome for them is going to be i mean there's you know when if you look at media stories you'll hear them say well they could be charged up to four the maximum being up to five thousand dollars per infraction is that really going to happen i guess it could i guess it could yeah i guess it could but you i don't know i don't know Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Moving on to our blackity black black story this week. Rest in peace. Rest in power, actually. Mm. Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier lived through the end of Jim Crow, through the civil rights movement, and through the golden age of Black entertainment. At 94 years old, Sidney is our first Black Hollywood icon to say goodbye in 2022. And just days after another icon, not Black icon, but another Hollywood icon, Betty White. Known widely as Hollywood's first Black movie star, he was the first Black person to win the Oscar for Best Actor in Take This In 1964 for his 1963 film, Lilies of the Field. And this is after being first nominated in 1959 for his role in film, The Defiant Ones. It wasn't all good, though. During the height of the civil rights movement, Poitier received a lot of criticism about playing roles that, frankly, just made white people feel good and look good, but was not an accurate representation of the Black experience. Black people began grumbling that Poitier's saintly, non-sexualized characters bore very little resemblance to the complex realities of African-American life at the time. Black playwright Clifford Mason, in a 1967 New York Times column, argued that Poitier played the same person in every single movie. (laughs) He was the good guy in a white world with no wife, no woman, no person to love or to kiss, just playing sidekick to help the white man solve a white man's problem. Right. I can imagine how difficult that must have been 
uh, because Poitier said himself that he wasn't able to film south of the Mason-Dixon line. So he wasn't able to film in the south at all. Mm-hmm. Poitier spoke publicly about how difficult things were in those times, saying specifically that he refused to take roles that were demeaning. He said in an interview with Oprah Winfrey that, quote, Blacks were so new in Hollywood, there was almost no frame of reference for us except as stereotypical, one-dimensional characters. I had in mind what was expected of me, not just what other Blacks expected, but also what my mother and father expected and what I expected of myself, end quote. From the 1970s onward, he moved out of acting and pivoted to directing, feeling he had more control behind the scenes. And that he did. He created great films, including Stir Crazy, Ghost Dad, Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again, among others, as their director. In 2009, President Obama awarded Poitier the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor, saying, quote, It's been said that Sidney Poitier does not make movies, he makes milestones. Milestones of artistic excellence, milestones of America's progress, end quote. Mm. Poitier is the seventh child of a couple of tomato farmers from the Bahamas. Ultimately, it was where he laid his head to rest on January 7th, 2022. Mm. Rest in power, Sidney Poitier. Rest in power. Moving on to news from the world. So we're one year post-Capitol insurrection. And I have a question for you, Curtis. Is democracy under attack? Yes. Hmm. That was that was quite succinct and quite quick. Okay, apparently, <laughs> apparently, a year after the insurrection, everyone who's anyone thinks things are going downhill fast. <laughs> <laughs> both Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. both feel things are the worst they have ever been. An interesting stat from the Washington Post says that the percentage of Americans who say violent action against the government is justified Hmm. at times stands at 34%, which is considerably higher than in past polls by the Washington Post or any major news organization over the last two decades. The view is, of course, partisan. 40% Republicans, 41% of independents, and 23% of Democrats say violence is sometimes justified. But folks are really kind of digging in their heels on, on this, meaning violence against the government, and on the issue of whether or not democracy and the voters were the ones who elected President Biden. About 7 in 10 Americans say that Biden's election as president was legitimate. That's seven, right? Leaving three, almost three, who say it was not, including 58% of Republicans and 27% of independents. The 58% of Republicans who say that Biden was not legitimately elected as president is down, actually. (laughs) So 58% is down from 70% this time last year. That is positive. (laughs) Among those who say that they voted for Trump in 2020, 69% of those people now say Biden was not legitimately elected, while 97% of Biden voters say, of course, Biden was legitimately elected. The Republicans' rejection of Biden's victory is obviously not novel. Even before this whole Biden versus Trump thing happened, in fall of 2017, a University of Maryland Center for Democracy and Civic Engagement poll said that 67% of Democrats and 69% of Hillary Clinton voters 
thought that Trump was not legitimately elected president. So this is just the way that America works right now, right? After a major election that is highly polarized, highly polarized and a pretty close call, folks just don't believe the results of, of the election. Uh. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if Biden would agree that seven million votes is a close call, but okay. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Yeah, so yeah, it was not a close call. It was not a close call, but folks definitely thought that at least early in the in the uh, election. Yes, it definitely was. Yeah, yeah that that this sure. was going to to be close. So, so what do you think about folks just thinking that that it is okay to uh, you know? be violent and and you use violence to take down the government and what do you think about folks just not believing what the the elections are, are saying after you know votes have been cast so i'm going to be fairly succinct with my first thought <laughs> about the u.s citizenry or a contingent of them being willing to resort to violence to overthrow the government um, as we know, the U.S. government has been responsible for many series or many scenarios where instability coups have been brought to bear on countries and um, the citizens of those countries, whether they be in South America, Africa, even certain places in Eastern Europe, um, <clears throat> uh, Asia Pacific region, etc. I mean, all around the world, quite literally. Yeah. Um, they've, they've all been uh, the victims of U.S.-born instability as a result of people or the U.S. government thinking that violence to overthrow opposing governments is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So if this is finally coming home to roost on the U.S. government, whether it is a good government or a bad government, well, that is how karma works. Right. The second part, though, so sorry, what was your other part of your your uh your question well the other part of my question was like what what do we think about people just not believing the results of these elections yeah now that is i mean i don't know i'm a very pragmatic person patience and um the reality is that there are always going to be people who are willing to resort to violence to um accomplish their aims right um, it wanes and it's, yeah, it wanes with time. It wanes with increased education where right now we're in a time where that's a thing, not the case, not a thing. Right. <laughs> so it, it just makes sense that there are more people thinking like this. Yeah. Um, and so we need to take action to ensure that we are educating people about the, if, if we think like this, the outcome will be X. Right. We need to start having those kinds of conversations because we are in a time, and it's not just on this issue, we are in a time where we're forgetting the rules and why the rules are in place. Hmm. That's a very interesting perspective. Yeah. I've never heard it said like that. I've Yeah. And I fundamentally have believed that for some time. That, that's, that's basically my perspective. We're forgetting the rules and we need to be reminded one way or another. We have tried to avoid speaking about the politics of vaccination in response to the COVID-19 uh, disease. But, you know, as I mentioned before our holiday break, many sub-Saharan African countries and many, you know, countries that, you know, have smaller economies in general 
have a really low rate of fully vaccinated citizens. So if we talk specifically about Sub-Saharan Africa, less than 5% of their populations on average have fully vaccinated citizens. But what what I found out recently that really motivated me to put this back on the, the podcast is that some countries, like Israel, for instance, are offering like their senior citizens, a, a portion of their population, a second booster. Not the first. A, a, a second, like number two. <laughs> like number four. Like number four. Like... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what exactly, One, two, no, sorry. What exactly are we doing here, Curtis? Mm. Wealthier nations continue to look inwards when it comes to COVID-19 and do all that they can to protect their own populations. But this carousel of new variants and new boosters is only going to continue if wealthier nations do not work together to vaccinate the entire world. Right. Not to mention, you know, the the other issue. So in addition to sharing vaccines, we also need to share patents. But mm-hmm. Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson has kind of made that impossible. Um, mm-hmm. So as they continue to hold on to their patents, we're not even able to produce enough vaccines for, for the entire world. I mean, but enough is also relative. But I, I found this story and I, I want you to consider this because this gave me a lot of pride. When the pandemic began, Curtis, Cuba recognized that, you know, as a result of its 60-year-long U.S economic sanction, it would be impossible or really, really challenging for them to import COVID-19 vaccines. Mm -hmm. So they decided to manufacture their own. Mm -hmm. Their vaccine was approved for use in adults in Cuba in August of 2021. And then in November, a study showed that the Cuban-produced vaccine is more than 90% effective in protecting against a symptomatic COVID-19 infection when used in combination with a related vaccine. Another Cuban-produced vaccine, Abdala, manufactured at the Center for Genetic Engineering and Biology, has been found to be 92% effective at protecting against uh, the serious disease. So they're still in their phase three of their trials and that hasn't been published, but the vaccines were given approval for use in adults in Cuba in July of 2021. Both vaccines are are also being given to children in Cuba and are currently being exported to other countries that are, you know, frankly, also bound by U.S. sanctions, including Mm -hmm. Venezuela and Iran. Hmm. So truth is, obviously, we're dealing with some huge vaccine inequity and poorer countries with fewer people vaccinated are more likely to, you know, produce more variants and keep this 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 disease going. But there is hope. Obviously, Cuba has shown us that where there is a lot of education, where there is a lot of um, dedicated funding, you can produce your own mm-hmm. vaccine. But lots of countries just simply need folks to share their vaccines. Mm-hmm. Any any thoughts on this? How, how proud are you of Cuba? Let's start there. Yeah, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of Cuba. Um, you know, I actually have a god sister, um, Jamaican, obviously, um, who studied to become a doctor in Cuba, um, and she's certainly one of the folks who's helping right now to a, to a, you know to to manage the the COVID nineteen outbreak there. So, 
Yeah, no, I'm very proud of them. And it's a great example of what can be done when, as you pointed out, when there's education, when there's will Mm -hmm. um, and an ability to come together to overcome. It's really unfortunate that we're going to continue to go through this merry-go-round of, you know, geopolitics manifesting as a health pandemic. (laughs) But um, hopefully folks wake up soon. Jumping to questions for the audience. Hot damn, here we go again. Living under yet another lockdown that may not be a direct result of Doug Ford, but it's definitely being made worse by his grade three level decision-making skills. And people are cheesed. This week, our question is this. Do you think these lockdowns will be the straw to break the camel's back? Will this be the nail in the coffin for Doug Ford's government? You've just listened to episode 79 of The Trip. We're releasing pods on a regular basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. You can also keep up with us on our Instagram and through our Patreon pages dedicated to the podcast. Follow us or support us at The Drip TO. And we love all of our listeners, but a message specifically to our Black listeners. We hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Toronto's very own Be On Location for the sounds you're hearing now. You can find more tracks from him wherever you get your music. See y'all next time. Traffic. She wears a skirt with no pennies. The leather got me going crazy. Throwing
the pack, she got fatty on her. She got a blueprint on Tatiana. I was induced for the after hours. She playing views when I'm smashing on her. She said it's great, it's something new and sensual. So I ain't got nothing left, I gotta prove. The nighttime, the right time, the lights down. You got me thinking about you right now. 